Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. These people have gotten away from religion and gotten away from going to church and gotten away from even like neighborhood block parties and stuff like that. Everything's isolated, living in an urban environment, talking to people on the other side of the screen, getting in your car, going to the grocery store, coming home, not having that contact that our ancestors thrived with, thrived on. So yeah, I think getting outside, getting that, that exercise, but also just having a community to, that holds you to account is super important. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today, uh, Matt Thornton, military veteran. You work in the UFC community, some philosophy stuff. We know you through Peter Bogosian, uh, who our audience knows. Tell us about yourself, uh, kind of about your, uh, give, give us your bio, your history, and what you're doing now. Sure. I started, uh, I left the military in 1989. I started boxing, uh, ran it, had the, the, luck of running into Hicks and Gracie and a gentleman named Fabio Santos before the first UFC started my own school in 1992 called straight blast gym or SBG. So, and then over the last 30 years, we've grown to have locations all across the, the globe and famously in Ireland with Connor and uh, the UK and across the United States and Canada. And uh, yeah, I spent the last 30 years of my life doing that and traveling around and teaching and focused on uh, helping people, helping good people become more dangerous to bad people. Sure, yeah. So, and you grew up in the uh, Bay Area? I did. I actually grew up in a little town. Well, it's not technically the Bay Area, but a little town called Hollister, which is about 45 minutes from Carmel, uh, kind of in the valley just below San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Is it north or south of Carmel? It'd be east, I believe. East? Yeah. Oh, so it's a little bit more inland. Yeah, I used to live in Oakland back in the day. Um enjoyed going down to Monterey. It's nice down there. Uh, yeah. So what, uh, what'd you do in the uh, military? If you don't mind me asking. 11 Bravo. I was 11 Bravo and I was in the Berlin brigade before the wall came down. Mm, what, what is that? Was it first ID? Uh, no. Um, I can't remember the actual battalion at the time, but, uh, yeah, Berlin brigade. Cool. Um, so, what is it? Uh, so you get out of the military, it's 89. Um, you know, things are progressing pretty rapidly vis-a-vis -vis the Cold War ending, right? Like we all kind of knew that that was coming to an end. Um, Russia was out of money. They had lost control of most of their satellite states and things like that. And um, <clears throat> I think it's one of the transition problems a lot of people have. They They get out of the military with no purpose or goal or anything like that when which is kind of, probably kind of difficult for folks because you know you you for at least for four years depending on how long you you spend in the military but for at least three or four years your entire life is about setting and achieving goals right um with pretty high consequences for for some of them right because if you don't achieve certain goals you uh may 
lose your job there. If you don't uh, achieve others, you may die, right? Or your buddies might die. So it's a pretty high stakes environment. And then we get out and we just see the rat race like this is stupid, you know? So, you know, finding purpose outside of that is probably one of the more, like people ask a lot about military transition these days. You know, if I have any advice on it, like immediately find a purpose. Even if it's not the one you're going to have for the rest of your life, find some kind of purpose immediately and, and uh, you know, work from there. That, that's probably the most important thing. And it looks like you did. So when you first got into the fighting part, was it centered around just doing it because you liked it? Or was it immediately centered around the idea of developing this, some kind of program to, to transfer to other people so they can become you know, better at defending themselves, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was very fortunate, I guess, in a way, depending on how you look at it. I, I didn't, I wasn't in during a time of war, the mm. cold war, but I was in, uh, just after Grenada and just before Panama and they actually sent me home just before the wall came down. So, um, I didn't have a super intense military experience. Um, I enjoyed it, but the reason I joined the military, uh, was because I was interested in fighting and what works in fighting. And in my mind, I had this idea of, you know, wanting to be a commando or go in the army and learn that aspect of it. When I came out of the army and while I was in the army and the moment I came out, I knew right away I, what I wanted to pursue was martial arts. So in that sense, I feel like I've been lucky. I know a lot of people need to find a goal. In my case, I've always had this goal for whatever reason of wanting to know what works, and what doesn't work in a fight. So when I got out of the military, I looked up uh, Jeet Kune Do instructors because while I was in the military, I was doing a little boxing. I knew I wanted to box. And from what I read pre UFC days before MMA, the philosophy of Jeet Kune Do appealed to me because they talked about fighting at all ranges, stand up, clinch, ground. I've been in quite a few fights where I've been put in a headlock or taken down. I knew I needed grappling. I wanted to to do that. And I started to train Jeet Kune Do. I trained for a few years, became an instructor, taught for a few years. And long story short, became pretty disillusioned with a lot of what I saw in the community. Hmm. And right as I was having that, that moment where I was getting more and more skeptical and cynical about what they were doing, I ran into Gracie Jiu Jitsu. I ran into Fabio and Hickson. And I immediately knew, you know, this is it. This is what I've been looking my whole life for. This is, this is the real deal. And I, set about teaching for one reason only. I never thought I'd make a living at it. I never thought I'd run a gym. I, I set out teaching just so I could have training partners. Cause I had no, I was in Oregon at the time. There's no schools, there's no jujitsu schools or MMA at the time. So that was my, that was my reason. And when I started, everybody told me, you know, you're not going to make any money. It's, you know, it's not going to be popular. People don't want to tap out or sweat. They want to collect certificates and click sticks together mm. and do that. And of course, they all turned out to be wrong. And real quickly, my my gym started to expand. So in that sense, I really do feel like I was more fortunate than anything else. I had a vision in my mind of what I wanted to do. I had the fortune of running into the people that I needed to meet to be able to help me do it. And everything from there just kind of snowballed. Yeah, sure. Uh, It's interesting, the ability to handle yourself in uh, tough and potentially violent situations uh, and of course, protect other people and even to the point of treating them after some kind of event may have happened is something that we take pretty seriously because we've seen what that looks like in reality, right? So I think it's it, it can be difficult for people who haven't experienced some sort of firsthand violence or mass casualty event 
to really get their minds around what it means. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's also, I know you, um, are <clears throat> pretty involved in, in philosophy these days. And I like to think about these issues because I'll have, when mass shootings happen or something like that, I'll have very frank conversations about things with people because I understand what combat's like. I've been in combat, I've been in a lot of gunfights. Um, the frankness is something that I'm, I have a really hard time, I guess, imprinting on people. Like they don't, they don't seem to understand the, like think about triage, for example, you know, you, you, there's, there's five people laid out on the ground and you have to decide who's already dead, who's going to die. And there's nothing you can do about it. Who's treatable and in what order, right? That there's a lot going on there. And you know, you're not going to be able to simulate a situation like that. Like you can, I mean, you can certainly do training around stuff like that, but to simulate the stress and anxiety around that, that's why I think things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu specifically uh, is really important because <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you're in a safe environment or whatever when another grown adult is trying to fucking choke you out your animalistic instincts kick in. You know what I mean? I, I think it's even like going to the gun range or something like that doesn't compare to getting on the mat with somebody and fighting for your life. I think it's a really important, not just from, you know, a physical exercise or even the ability uh, to handle yourself in that kind of situation, but also simulating an environment where you're f afraid for your life, but you're, there's really low, if any risk, you know what I mean? Right. So I wonder if, uh, Man, people live extremely busy lives these days. I mean, some of it is just superfluous nonsense that we do that we don't need to, but um, it can be challenging to find time to really commit to multiple types of fitness. Uh, what I mean is like going to the gym two, three. Oh, For some reason, we've got jets going over my head today. That doesn't usually happen. Looks like it's gone now. Oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, if, uh, what I mean when I say committing to multiple types of fitness going to the gym two, three, four times a week. Um, and then maybe some kind of fighting or shooting class one or two times a week. That's tough, man. For somebody that's working 50, 60 hours, they got wife and kids or whatever. Uh, that it's not easy to make all that happen, but I do think it's important for all the reasons, you know, that people can find in your work and all the reasons that we are discussing right now. What advice do you have for people like that, that are trying to find ways to fit it in? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I've tried to explain to people over the years, my connection with philosophy and, and the martial arts comes in skepticism and teaching people what works and what doesn't work and being able to determine, you know, what works and what doesn't work, because there's a lot of bullshit, as I'm sure you know, in mm -hmm. martial arts. And the thing I've tried to explain to people over the years is all the martial arts that work, what I would call a functional martial art, have one thing in common, and that's their combat sports. So I'm talking about judo, mm -hmm. Muay Thai, boxing, MMA, that those arts that are incorporated in MMA are all sports. And the reason they're all sports is because sports has that opponent process. You're dealing with an alive opponent. And because you care about the results, you go to what we always go to when we care about results, some form of meritocratic competition. Mm -hmm. And so what I always encourage people to do when they're focused primarily on self-preservation, and that's their reason for getting in martial arts is find a combat sports gym. I mean, I personally obviously love Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, but, 
wrestling, judo, anything like that, that you can do a couple days a week that's sustainable is going to give you that feeling of dealing with, you know, another live human being who's actually resisting, fully mm. resisting you. And you get used to that over and over again. And that's a great thing. It's great for all the reasons you mentioned. It's great in terms of taking care of your body. It, it's great in terms of what it teaches you about hand-to-hand -hand combat and what you do and don't know. Um, and it, it heals people. I mean, it keeps people healthy mentally and physically. So there's another one. <laughs> I think they may be spying on you today. Scrambled here for some reason, but, um, it's such an important thing that what I would tell people is first of all, find a combat sports gym. And then second, prioritize it. Everybody. I have five kids. I have, have multiple companies. I work, obviously I work full time. My wife doesn't work. We homeschool. I understand how hard it is to, to find time to do things, but you have to have enough time that you can take care of yourself. Otherwise everything else is going to fall apart. And so for me and for my wife and for my kids, having a few hours a week that I have set aside, dedicated to going into my gym and training and rolling is just absolute necessary for my mental health and for my physical well-being. So people, and in most cases, no matter how busy somebody is, there's a rare exception, but in most cases, no matter how busy somebody is, you can prioritize four or five hours out of your week to get into the gym and take care of your body. You, know, you can get up earlier, you can do whatever you need to do to make sure you have that time. But um, I think everybody, once they do that and they start to experience it and a month goes by, two months goes by of repeating that habit and getting in there and working with a live uh, opponent with that opponent process on the mat, they're going to be so much happier. You know, you're going to feel happier, feel healthier, feel more confident. And, uh, and you're not going to want to quit at that point. So I would tell everybody out there to find a school, any kind of functional martial art, which is going to be a combat sport, set aside a few weeks for yourself and as just maintenance of your human body and get in there and do it. And I think real quickly they'll find they're going to, they're going to enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can, it, it's, there, there's two things I want to touch on. The first one is the healing part you talked about. Um, uh, I've had conversations with uh, Tim Kennedy quite a bit about this, about the women's protector courses that he does. And, you know, a lot of it is just a lot of the students are women who haven't necessarily used weapons before and their husbands want them to, like, carry a gun. And before they do that, they want them to go get some experience, whether from some people, you know, Delta operators and Rangers and shit that know what they're talking about. Um, that That's a big part of it. But another big part of it are, are people, women who have been victims of uh, of assault or sexual assault, right? And he's told me, I mean, I, I know uh, we, we've had a dozen conversations about this, about <clears throat> this, uh, like you can almost tell who it is in the class because they're kind of mousy and anxious and stuff. And then they'll get into their first couple of roles and, and, and have some pressure applied to them. And you'll just see them like tears streaming down their face because they're reliving that moment. You know what I mean? And then the the same story every single time by the end of the class now you've got a powerful and prepared person who isn't crying anymore right i that you it's one thing to be prepared for shit and it's another thing to change someone's life so there isn't always this you know uh, uh albatross this ang anxious albatross hanging around their neck every single breath they take is heavy you know what i mean and you've helped them relieve that well 
he's helped them quite a bit, but in reality, they helped themselves by showing up in the first place, right? Absolutely. That's the thing I like, love most about my job. And I can't, I mean, I can't even express to you how many times I've seen that happen all around the world. You know, women that come from abusive relationships or have had previous experiences, been raped and things like that. Kids that have been abused. Um, I've seen kids that were autistic and would come in that couldn't even make eye contact or have a conversation with somebody. And a year later, they're, they're a changed person. So that give and take of that physical relationship you have with another body on the mat is super important. And the lessons that we draw from that are vast. And it, uh, it allows people to open up and to be able to experience a better and better connection to other humans just through that process, just through wrestling, getting on the mat, touching, feeling, feeling somebody holding you down, feeling, feeling that resistance, that just that intimacy of closeness with another human body. Um, it heals people. I don't know how else to say it. And it, and it changes people. And, and that's probably the single best thing about my job. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned autism. Um, uh, so most communication, 85 to 95%, depending on which study you believe is nonverbal, right? Um, and it's what the way you're describing this, it sounds like it's almost a supplement to talk therapy, right? I mean, you, like you're going to get what you get out of talk therapy, but there are things that you can say with your body and through struggle that you can't say that you can't verbalize necessarily. That's probably a pretty important thing for these people. It's that exposure to human touch. Mm. <clears throat> You know, that makes a huge difference in people's lives. I'm, I'm not sure. I've never I'm sure there are other activities that are also good, but I've never seen anything personally that matches jujitsu just because uh, grappling and, and fighting in that way with another human is so primal. And so mm. it, it's, it's not like hitting focus mitts or, um, you know, practicing a martial art where there's this distance. It's it's. Uh, yeah, it, it really is about that that physical connection. I don't think there's any way to circumvent that process. And once people go through it and they start to be, at first they're going to be very uncomfortable. They might cry. They might be upset. They might have to step off the mat. You know, sometimes I have to be careful keeping an eye on people. If I can see that they're going to have a panic attack when they're stuck under, underneath, for example, I've seen right. that happen. And then you kind of, you know, work them into it slowly. But over time, and it doesn't take a long time, a month, two months, three months, you have a changed person who's going to be underneath another human body who's crushing them and no longer have a panic attack. And um, that's a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I think we've lost in the culture of safetyism, uh, well, well, two major things. One is comfort and discomfort, right, which I think is a really important part of life because that's most of life is going to be uncomfortable. Um and if you're uncomfortable with that, life's going to be rough. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, a, it's not going to be a fucking easy time to get this stuff done that you need to get done. If you're, if the specter of the discomfort is always hanging over you, no matter what you're doing, I mean, you're never going to be able to perform at your best like that. Um, and the other thing is uh, low level conflict resolution and being able to be comfortable in that situation enough that you make good rational decisions that take not just yourself, but other people into in, account, because that's how like the, the way that any evolutionarily designed mind works is 
we're reasonable up until a point until we feel like we're threatened and then we're a dog in a corner, right? I mean, that's just how it works. You have, like you're, there's a preternatural urge to defend yourself and it, it'll overcome reason because reason and reason can cause hesitation, which can get you killed. We know that. But if we lose our ability to persist through discomfort in a, in a reasonable way, now, now we've really lost something. You know what I mean? Like we've lost the ability to stop really horrible things from happening that don't necessarily need to happen. It's escalation. You know what I mean? It goes back and forth. And I think uh, it's why I encourage people, especially if you have younger kids, get them into like my, my co-host on the other show and Drake bros, his kids, uh, eight years old. I think he's in Brazilian jujitsu. Like it's the best time, even if they don't do it as an adult, having them do that, do that when they're, you know, six to 12 years old, that's a really important growth period for kids. Like I said, I have five kids and, um, for my girls, I have two daughters and my son. Um, and they're now nine and 12 for them going to jujitsu isn't, uh, is mandatory. I Mm -hmm. view it the same way as learning how to swim. It's Mm -hmm. just one of those skills. Fortunately, they love it. We have great instructors. They enjoy it. And I, I think now they'll stick with it, but even if they didn't want to go, I feel it's so important that as soon as they turn six, seven, they're on the mat. They're going to go and they're going to show up to class. Uh, my wife's from Iceland and she compared it to everybody in Iceland having to learn how to swim, obviously, because mm. you're on an island. And I think of it exactly the same way. It's just an essential fundamental skill I want every you know little girl and boy to have. And, and they get so much from it. It's uh, unbelievable. So, yeah, absolutely. Get your kids in there. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I want to discuss from your uh, previous comment was discipline. Um, you didn't say it specifically, but it's kind of what you were uh, hinting at by building a schedule around yourself. So people think people look at people think there are two types of folks, a disciplined person and an undisciplined person. And that's very reductive, right? So uh, folks think that discipline is training yourself to always do the right thing. And, and there's some, there's certainly an element of that. You know what I mean? Like you do want to create good habits and stuff like that, but discipline is also understanding what your weaknesses are. You know what I mean? So, you know, you know, if you have issues with late night snacks, do yourself a favor and don't buy them. You know what I mean? Like you can cut that shit off before it even gets down to the point where you have to, that you can train yourself to make good decisions when you're under duress. That's a good thing to do, but you can also like mitigate duress upstream. You know what I mean? Uh, it seems like a good idea. If you know you have problem, a problem making it to the gym or to the mat, on a regular basis, then make yourself a hard schedule, right? And find a buddy who's on that same schedule. The, the, these are things you can do uh, that seem like, well, if you were disciplined, you wouldn't have to do that. No, that is discipline, right? It's building guardrails for yourself to make sure you do these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, on one hand, I've never had a day in my entire life where I thought to myself, man, I really don't feel like going into the gym to train today. It's never happened to me. So I, I just have the great fortune of loving what I do. So going, being on the mat and rolling or training jujitsu, you know, one of my all time favorite things to do. So I've never felt that I needed to work hard to get there and do it, but I do have to discipline myself when it comes to just basic fundamental conditioning, because it's not something I really enjoy. Mm. And it's really just about the creation of habits. And once people get in the habit of doing it two, three, four weeks, it starts to become something regular and you start to pick it up and, and you start to enjoy it because you're starting to reap the benefits from it. 
but you know, I, I always encourage people to do both. You want to have develop habits that are going to help you in your life doing the, the things that are healthy and, and, and important, like eating well and exercising and things like that. But you also want to find what you love to do. Like everybody's different. Find that thing that you love where it doesn't require discipline, where you think, man, you never have to tell yourself you're looking forward. You have to work hard to do it. You just want to go do it. And I think that's very important, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's those are just two birds are two wings on the same bird. I think I don't think you can you can get away from one or the other. Um, <clears throat> so, one of the things uh, you mentioned it in your uh, in your intro, but one of the things that you focused on for a career is is helping people get prepared uh, to defend themselves and others, right? Um, can you, can you go like, what is it that motivates you to do that? What, 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 I guess maybe what shortcomings in society do you see that, that precipitate the need for that sort of thing? Well, you know, I, for whatever reason, I had that fundamental question from, for as long as I can remember when I was a young kid about what works and what doesn't work in a fight. So that pushed me and I was always moved me to discover what works in hand to hand combat. And as I started to teach and I started to do this for a living, one of the things I would constantly hear is, well, that's, there's, this is for sport and this is for street. And then they would offer some dead pattern, some sclerotic pattern for street defense. And I would want to explain to people that, listen, um, circumstances will dictate your tactics and plans change on contact. And, you know, of course, a fight in a parking lot with a couple of people is different from a fight in the gym. Having said that, there's no special mount escape that you use when you're in a parking lot that you don't use in the gym or headlock for, for that situation. Those core skills you develop in stand-up clinching ground in the gym translate everywhere. They translate into street, MMA. You know, if you're work, working on fundamentals, it'll be gi, no gi, MMA, self-defense. It's going to be essentially the same building blocks, same delivery system. So I try and get that across to people. And then the next thing you would hear often is, well, we're only focused on the physical aspect of it. All of the pre-fight things, being able to notice what's going on around you and things like that are not taught, which is also not true. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And when I, when I have people really prioritize on self-defense, I give them one acronym, which is MIND, and that's maturity, intelligence, noticing what's going around, on around you, and then the three Ds of distance management, determination, and deterrence. And they're an order of priority. So... You know, I think anybody that looks at the data, crime data, violent crime in the United States or around the world, but particularly here, if you take an honest look at that data, you're going to see right away that the, the biggest problem we have is issues of maturity. Hmm. You know, a good percentage of what we see when the shootings and homicides, for example, fatherless young boys murdering fatherless young boys over petty, stupid issues related to status. Hmm. It's not about money. It's not about like big drug money or anything like that. It's 13 to 25 murdering each other over dumb, small, petty issues. No fathers anywhere to be found. And that's an issue of maturity, of self-awareness, impulse control, and um, empathy, and the lack thereof. And so everything begins, in my, in my mind, when we talk about violence, begins with maturity. You know, being a mature person, doing mature things in mature places with mature people. And once you have that you immediately set yourself into a different category and the odds of you, you know, even running into 
having to engage in a violent conflict shoot way down. And then after we set that up and we make sure that we've got that right, then it's a question of intelligence, which is using your mind to prioritize, you know, real threats as opposed to fake threats. You have guys that are constantly worried about a terrorist attack, but they're 150 pounds overweight, you know, eating a, drinking a 32 ounce cup of soda. Those people aren't actually interested in self-preservation. They're interested, they're worried about humiliation. And so they want to be good. They want to be in a situation where they can prevent somebody else from humiliating them. But the extension of their life isn't really the true motive. Otherwise, of course, they would prioritize and take care of the things that are, that most of us are actually going to die from. And in intelligence, there's also, you know, being educated to a certain extent about pre-fight, pre, uh, pre-encounter incident, uh, things that you can look for, and um, knowing when things just aren't just aren't right, when things just don't look right, being able to recognize that, and above all else, honoring your your primal instincts when they go off and they mm. tell you something is not right here and not letting your mind override that because you want to be a nice person or you don't want to believe this is true or you're frightened, whatever it is. And finally, we get down to deterrence, um, determination and distance management. And once it becomes physical, as we both know, whether we're talking about a military encounter or a fight in the cage in the USC self-defense situation, Everything when we talk about physical encounters is about managing distance, managing space. And if you can control the space between you and your opponent, you can control the fight. And so, you know, once it gets physical, that's that's where we put our emphasis. But long before that, you have almost in almost every case a long series of of things that people either ignored or didn't pay attention to that led up to that. And um, Gavin DeBecker talked really well about that, The Gift of Fear. Yeah, The Gift of Fear is a good book. Acknowledge those instincts, recognize those instincts, understand why they're going off, listening to them, and then being able to make distance. All those things um, happen before we get to the physical encounter. This episode of Citizen is brought to you by GhostBed.com, Fort Size Drinking Bros. Right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. Or, for everything else, 30% off if you use the code DRINKITBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKITBROS. Uh, recently, we just got the mattress topper, which I got to tell you, it's soft. As soft gets, really. Um, <clears throat> we've got it on top of the ghost bed matrix. Uh, and then we cover it with a mattress protector and with the ghost bed sheets. What I'm saying to you is this. It's a one-stop shop for all of your bedding needs for your entire bedroom suite. Ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. The beautiful thing about this is that if you get the adjustable base plus the mattress, all the other accoutrement that you get, the pillows, the sheets, the pillowcases, the mattress topper, the mattress protector, the weighted blanket, all this stuff, 40% off with that bundle deal. For everything else, again, 30% off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. If you use the zero down 0% financing plan for up to 60 months, you're going to get your entire bedroom suite for somewhere between 25 and 40 bucks a month, depending on all the stuff you add to it. You're not going to get a better deal than that. And you can tell from the amount of time we've had these guys on the show from the reviews, right? That you can read uh, at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros from actual drinking bros. These are quality products. You're not going to get a better deal than this, folks. It's why we've had them for years. Go check it out, ghostbed.com. 
forward slash Drinker Bros. This episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. Look, these are my boys. We've known these guys forever. Um, used to work for the company, but I've known the guys involved in it for a lot longer than the company's existed. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. It's the same convenience that we're always looking for, except for this time it's American-made by veterans. Black Rifle Coffee Company's veteran-owned and operated supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. You're going to get premium coffee, the best possible cup, delivered every month at whatever uh, uh, time period you want. Seven days, 14 days, 21 days, 30 days, whatever you want. You choose your favorite roast. It's super simple. Go on to their coffee club page. Choose your favorite roast, the one that you know that you like the most. Uh, choose whatever style you want to deliver it in, whether it's coffee rounds for your Keurig or whole bean for you to grind or ground coffee if you don't have the opportunity to grind it yourself. And then the delivery schedule. And you're going to get that premium coffee, right? At the same time, every single month, members of the coffee club get free shipping. They also get access to all the exclusive partner discounts that we talk about on the show all the time. Get 20% off your first order by using the code CITIZEN. If you're not part of the Black Rifle Coffee Club, you need to be part of it right now. Go to blackriflecoffee.com and get that deal. And then finally, and certainly not, last but certainly not least, is BetterHelp. This is a company that we reached out to because we wanted to work with them. Um, You've seen a lot of the press lately. Uh, Patty from USC talking about men's mental health. Um, Look, there's a couple of things you really need to remember. First, bad news doesn't get better with time. You know, sitting around and waiting for stuff to get better, it's just not going to work, man. And I'm telling you, no matter what kind of other treatment you might be doing, whether it's, you know, some of the new stuff, some of the old stuff, Nothing is a replacement for talk therapy because that's what helps you identify the actual problem. It's how you find the smoke to find where the fire is, right? This is how you take care of your mind, right? We spend a lot of time talking about taking care of our bodies. What are we doing to take care of our mind? How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep it uh, the same one for the rest of your life? Well, that's the body and brain that you have, right? That's how your brain works. So why don't we treat them the same way? How can we care for a mind if we don't put the effort in, you know? So it's important to invest time. It's important to invest care and keeping both of these things healthy. There's plenty of ways to do this, to keep a healthy brain. There's your diet. There's surrounding yourself with the, by the, uh, with the right people. There's learning new languages for neuroplasticity and stuff like that. But there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. So BetterHelp is an online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions if you don't want to be seen or see other people, right? It's telemedicine that is geared directly towards one of the most common medical problems that exists, which is your mental health. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You don't have to go to an office. You don't have to take time out of your day to, you know, drive 20, 30 minutes somewhere, uh, uh, take time off of work or take time off of taking care of kids or whatever it is. It's more affordable than in-person therapy and unlike the traditional like those of you who have dealt with the VA before you know you know what it's like you go to you go to one medical care provider at your VA 
and they send you somewhere else and it takes two to three months to get an appointment there. And if that person's not the right person for you, then it takes another month or two to get, I mean, listen, forget all that stuff. You can be matched with a therapist with better help in under 48 hours. That's the key. It's always about how quickly this shit can happen to save lives. So if you're out there and you're struggling, right, make use of this. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash citizen. That's better com slash citizen. We're always talking about ways that we can help each other and what can we do to solve these problems. This is one of the solutions to those problems. Go out there and utilize the stuff that's available to you and get a better deal on it by using the code citizen. Betterhelp.com slash citizen. Yeah, it seems like we've changed the way that we view uh, natural stimulus. So um, pain used to be an indicator that something was wrong. And then you look upstream and try to find out what the symptom is telling you. And then we got into opiates and just put a Band-Aid on that so we could keep, I guess, being productive little workers. I don't know what the – maybe that's just the result, but – For all the the homeopathic and naturalistic bullshit that you see in, in uh, whatever alternative medicine is, and I'll address that, something either works and it is medicine or it does not work and it's bullshit. There's no such thing as alternative medicine. But for all the naturalistic stuff you see, man, I don't see a whole lot of people just listening to what their brain is telling them. Like your neuro... Your, the, nature's had a, a, a... I don't know. Let, let's be let's be liberal and say 250,000 years to program you to be able to like your, your brain is a very complicated machine that perceives threats and benefits. That's what it is, right? Um, benefits in as far, insofar as staying alive and then passing your genes as far downstream as possible and threats as in keeping your family, community, whatever alive. Um, so if you see something, if something's given, like making your spider sense go off, I don't care if you're trained or not. Like it doesn't matter what level of training you've had and your and your life. Your DNA has been trained for this forever, so far as you're concerned, right? Like, it's certainly a lot older than any of us are, but we seem to have, uh, for some for some reason, and I, I the reason I brought up medicine is because this is not the way we function in society. Isn't the only way place this is happening like it's it's happened in pretty much everything we do um we we continuously unsolve problems that we've solved thousand like two thousand years ago when it comes to like greek government and things like that uh pay attention like situational awareness is about knowing what's going on around you but it's also about listening to the cues where there's smoke there's fire right it doesn't mean you have to sprint away every time you feel a a tingle in the back of your head but you should definitely look around like if you if something feels off to you look around look at people's hands is is there something in their hands look at the what they're wearing is it hot as fuck but they're wearing like uh, bulky clothing why start asking questions are they wearing the proper footwear for example uh these are really important things that require no training at all. You can read this on an infographic and then go out in public and practice, you know what I mean, anytime you want. So uh, what, what do you think it is? I think it's a product of our success in many ways. I mean, 
exactly as you, as you just said, there are things that we can teach people to look for, and, and we certainly do that. But what I try and get across to people is, as Richard Dawkins has pointed out many times, every single one of us, you, me, everybody listening to us, is a product of a consistent chain of success. Every one of your ancestors lived, lived long enough to procreate all the way down the line, which in comparison to the vast majority of living things out there is amazing. And, and you, me, we are the product of that. And ingrained inside you, that's why I call those things primal instincts. Ingrained inside you, you have all these instincts to be aware of danger, to be aware of, of uh, an agent that ha is up to no good that's around you, to be aware of situations that are um, not in your interest. And as long as people understand that and they start to trust that and they start to listen to that, that's 90% of it. There are other things we can show people, but that's 90% of it. That's innate. And get, giving people the confidence to trust their own instincts and that kind of thing is one of the biggest things we try and do when we're, when we're talking to people about learning how to defend themselves. Mm. As far as why we've gotten away from those, I, I think because we can, because we live in a society where most people can go to the grocery store to get their meat. Uh, there's a whole lot of people who are really divorced from violence and, and may have never been in a violent encounter, may have never even seen a violent encounter except on TV uh, or in the movies. And, and for them, um, the things that our ancestors had to go through are seem far removed. Mm. Those instincts are still in them, but they may not understand that. They may not trust that. And in a way, you know, obviously we have a, a large uptick in violence after George Floyd and the biggest 30% jump, the biggest jump the United States has ever seen last year in terms of homicides. But long-term, long, long-term, going back generations, Violence has been on a fairly steady decline every century. And the further back we go, the, the more violent we were. And along with that decline and also living in urban environments comes a kind of separation from the instincts that our ancestors had and our ancestors understood. And so getting people back in touch with that is really important. And just to bring it full circle, Physically grappling with another human body is, is one of those things that can help you get back in touch with with those instincts and those that innate intelligence that our ancestors developed and knew full well. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of uh, it's like the hands on experience of I know how in my head, I know how I think people react under certain types of pressure. And I know how I what might react under certain types of pressure, but it's one thing to to know, and it's another thing to know, right? You know what I mean? Uh, we feel I, I, you're a hundred percent right about society and culture. We we feel like because of you know the rapid decline of violence, because of the relative comfort of our lives, that we're in some kind of post maybe post violent society or 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 something to that degree. Uh, but that's the thing about safety. You know, it's it's just like liberty, as Reagan said back in the day. It's always only one generation from extinction, you know. Um, and and it, it seems almost uh, like societally suicidal to the safety as a movement where, you know, we don't want people to experience low-level risk because it's things have become so safe that any incident – you know, relative to the overall safety seems large. We have no tolerance for that stuff. That's a, that's a, it's fatalistic, but it's also really stupid. I mean, like if you, if you thought about that from the point of view of an athlete, like I've gotten really good at shooting free throws. I'm just not going to practice that anymore. You know what I mean? 
because why should I? Well, that's fucking stupid. Nobody thinks that way in any other realm other than just how you live your day-to-day life, which is the most important part of your entire life, like your day-to-day habits. Yeah, no, we see it everywhere. And there is some kind of suicidal tendency running through Western culture right now. That's a broader topic. I don't want to go on a tangent, but that's definitely occurring. You know, I live in Portland and I walk around my neighborhood walking my dogs or with my kids and I can see all kinds of yard signs out there. And one of the, one of the things people say it frequently here in Portland is silence is violence, which I've always found kind of funny because it's so stupid, because obviously silence is the opposite of violence. But we've got a generation of people now uh, who've come out of college or who've been raised in an environment like we have here in Portland who view any kind of disagreement, even having their basic ideas about politics, for example, or the nature of the world, even having those ideas challenged, they view as a form of violence. And and they're so disassociated from real violence, actual physical violence, that they're living in kind of a fantasy world. And, and in many ways, I think completely incapable of potentially handing, handling the future situation should things get bad. And that's, that's not a good thing for our society. Mm. It's not a good thing for our kids. I think that has a lot to do with the public school system and what's going on in academia. Um, but it's going to continue. I, I, I hope, I think that this long-term trend of reduction in violence will continue in all likelihood. And so I think it's important to have these avenues and places where people can go back, young people and other people can go back and get back in touch with all those things that may have been forgotten that our ancestors understood. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's super important to, uh, I, I think for, not just for, uh, you know, the obvious reasons, which is self-defense and, and, and physical health and things like that, but also for, uh, for mental health. I think it's super important for people to, you know, lo- experiencing uh, long-term doubt and anxiety has a real and lasting effect on your psychology. Um, not feeling prepared for things. I mean, just imagine this. You don't know. Um, <clears throat> and, and this is something that will pop into your mind a lot because this is the way the human brain works. But you don't know if you're going to be able to pay your bills next month, for example. Like, like now go try to fucking get some sleep. That, it's tough for people, right? And that's easy to imagine because it's something that's in the prefrontal cortex. We're thinking about that actively all the time. But in the back of your mind all these all this pattern recognition and uh threat and benefit association that's going on in the back of your brain all the time is when you experience something in public uh or when there's tumult in society or politics or something like that that also adds quite a bit of stress and anxiety to your life whether you recognize it immediately or not and being informed and educated and prepared whether it's to you know, defend yourself physically or provide for yourself, like hunting, fishing, uh, whatever it is, right? Just the act of preparing for that will not only make you prepared for it, but it also has a very real effect on your psychology. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, psychology is contagious. So when we, like this, this societal decay that we talk about all the time, it, it, a big part of it is that we've, and I talk about this all the time. The reason I named the show citizen is because the definition of a citizen is uh, a, a person in a state 
who has conferred certain rights and responsibilities, both of those things. You know, yeah, we talk about our rights a lot. We don't spend a whole lot of time talking about our responsibilities. And that, that is true for being a better citizen. Uh, in my estimation, you're either going to be a citizen who takes into account your rights and also, more importantly, your responsibilities, or you're going to be a subject, right? It's going to be one of those two things. And, but that's true also in your own life. You know what I mean? Like if you're unprepared, if you're unhealthy, you're going to suffer the consequences of that stuff, and it's going to permeate through your entire family. It's going to permeate through all your friends, your coworkers, all this stuff. And it's what we mean when we say leader. You know what I mean? You don't have to be the CEO of the company. You don't have to be, you don't even have to be a manager of your company. You don't even have to work at a company, but people very frequently are afraid and confused, don't know what to do. And when they see somebody who confidently does things that inspires them to do it as well. That's what real leadership is. Leadership's not yelling or fucking telling people what to do. It's showing people what to do and doing it in your own life as well. And, um, you know, I think this stuff that you do is a really important part of that because it gives people a foundation that's, that's very real. You know what I mean? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I agree, you know, the going back to the part about stress, the two biggest things that help me with stress and that I've seen help people. Number one is being in the gym and just grappling hour after an hour of rolling in the gym, you know, 90% of whatever anxiety I had previous is gone and being outside getting back outside. But the other piece about a place like my gym or any any gym that you go to and you become part of is the community because that's the other missing piece that's happening to people is they're sitting behind glass screens. You had the ridiculous, almost criminal way we handled COVID. They're isolated from other people. They're not talking to other human beings, not even let alone physical contact. They're not even having one-on-one -on -one intimate communication with people. And we need community, you know, we're social primates, we need the closeness and, and other people that we care about, who care about us, who hold us to a particular standard, uh, that we hold to a particular standard that we can grow and evolve with. In the gym, and at least in my gym and other gyms that I've seen, it becomes a hub for that, you know, and it becomes you'll have and the great thing about it, too, is it, it goes back to that meritocratic system, you'll have a doctor rolling on the mat with a construction worker, rolling on the mat with a college student. All of them would probably have very little contact with each other outside the gym, but in the gym, they're all equals and sharing in a, a shared goal, training together, battling with each other and helping each other grow. And it becomes a community. You know, people go there two or three days a week. And anytime you go someplace where there's lots of people two or three days a week and you struggle with them, you're going to you're going to develop the benefit that also comes with having that that physical community. And I think that's super important is people have gotten away from religion and gotten away from going to church and gotten away from even like neighborhood block parties and stuff like that. Everything's isolated, living in an urban environment, talking to people on the other side of the screen, getting in your car, going to the grocery store, coming home, not having that contact that our ancestors thrived with, thrived on. So yeah, I think getting outside, getting that, that exercise, but also just having a community that you, that holds you to account is super important. And anybody that's out there that's listening to this, that's feeling isolated, get out there and, and find a place where you can, you can experience that around a group of people that you like and want to be around because it's one of the best things you can possibly do for your mental health and for, for your growth as a person. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, human beings are, uh, 
like matter and the universe and community is our gravity. It's, you know, no matter what circumstances or what time period or, or what geographical location human beings have been located over the last, you know, quarter million years or so, or, or our, our ancestors have been uh, over the last quarter million years, we have very, uh, uh, not even frequently, pretty much always uh, gravitated towards one another to build communities for a host of reasons, right? Um, and it's it's what you said. I mean, we're, we're the winners in the in the evolutionary lottery, I guess, because we have the benefit of being downstream from people who made not the, the it's it's reductive to say they made the right decisions. They just made decisions that make the most sense for this type of environment. So if we look back, you know, it, it's I understand the the need to progress. We can progress in the way that we administer our principles. We can progress in making sure that they're available for everybody. Uh, we can pro progress technologically and scientifically. But the general core concepts of what it means to be a human being in a community have not changed in, in any way, right? It's the, the reason that they've been so ubiquitous throughout human history is because that's what works. And, and we know that because that's how evolution works, right? That's how natural selection works. Um, this... I 100% I, I agree with you on the isolation thing. And I think one of the things, one of the principles of this show um, that I wrote kind of in that same vein is I will not allow those less fortunate or incapable of defending themselves to be harmed or taken advantage of in my country. So what it does, uh, one, one of the other principles is I'll do something every day to help my country, my countrymen are all men. And those two things specifically to me are about re-engaging re in society. Like if, you're, if you have the mental awareness and acuity to recognize these things for what they are, you are a leader by definition. You know what I mean? Just by recognizing what's happening, it is now incumbent upon you. And I would say uh, uh, a moral requirement of you to be a leader in your community, whatever that means. And again... the the community aspect of it is really important so how how do you you wave to your neighbors that's one thing right but then uh you see your neighbors trying to lift something heavy into the back of the truck then you go help them right that's 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 what it really means it, you, you can take it back to the middle of the 19th century where um where there's a lot of pioneering going on we're developing new territories um a lot of predatory behavior, no formal police system in the United States at that point. There are locally elected sheriffs. There's a lot of private contractors like the Pinkertons and shit like that. But as far as like a, a city police or, or a, a, a county sheriff's department with deputies and shit, that didn't exist. So some jackass shows up to your area and maybe there's 10 or 15 dudes that live in a 50 square mile area and they steal somebody's horse. Well, every dude that's an adult, which mean back then meant like 14 or higher, grabs their horse, grabs their gun, and goes out and finds this motherfucker, right? Because that's that's the rule of society. It is that even if we're we have something else to do, I'm busy. You know, I've got to I've got to take my kids somewhere. I got to do this. I got to do X, Y, Z. I'm not feeling good today. Fuck that. It is your moral responsibility to be there for the people around you, not just the people with the same last name that you have or the people that you, you know, go to football games with, everybody around you. And you can't do that if you're not prepared. 
You know what I mean? Like the best intentions, that's great. It looks great on paper, but that's virtue signaling. That's putting a Ukrainian flag in your Twitter profile, being actually ready both mentally and physically to help other people. That is one of the core, in my opinion, that's one of the, the foundational elements of being a good human being, but certainly in being a good citizen. You know, I love that. That's a great mission statement. I couldn't agree more um, with everything you said there. One thing that concerns me as well is when my dad, in my dad's generation, when he went to college and came home, what you would typically do is you, if you went to college, you would go to college and then you would come back to this small town you were born in. So for example, I was born in Hollister, California. He would go to state university or wherever, come back to Hollister, marry a local girl there, buy a house, live on a block, and you'd be invested in that community. And on that block, you might have the doctor down the street, a construction worker next to you, somebody that works at the grocery store, police officer, which my dad was, all on, a, on one street, all shopping at the same store, all living that shared experience as a citizen in, in the town of Hollister. Now what happens is if you go off to college, you'll leave Hollister and you'll go to one of the major metropolitan areas, you'll meet a girl at college who's doing the same thing. And then you'll both move to Portland or LA or Seattle, and you will live in a community of people who went to the same level of college you went to that shop at a grocery store, at Whole Foods, and you're completely now, what we have is almost two different worlds and they do not understand each other. We saw that of course with the election of Trump and, and a whole fraction of citizens who had no idea what had happened because they were so far removed from everyday experiences of, of Americans who, who don't come from that coastal elite culture. Mm -hmm. And where that occurs, I think that's going to lead to even greater separation and even more loneliness and even more despair. And um, almost two countries, which we're at the stage where I think we're, al we're almost there right now. So wherever possible, I like to see areas where people can come together and physically come together and engage in an activity. And if it's something that helps build the community, that's even better, like you're describing. But to get everybody from the different backgrounds and different political beliefs and get them together working for a common goal that's going to help, help you locally at that local level, I think that's one of the best things we could possibly do for our country right now. Because from what I've seen from the politicians and the media, uh, corporate media especially, their goal is the opposite. I think they're invested in maintaining that separation and, and driving a wedge deeper and deeper between people of our nation. And uh, it's headed in a dangerous direction. So for all those reasons and more, I think your, your mission statement's very important because people need to get together and talk to each other. And the moment you do that, so much of the bullshit that, that we have, you know, just starts to disappear. You realize how much of it was almost created by, by our media so much of that anxiety, so much of the anger is manufactured by what we're clicking on on the glass screen. And so the more that happens, the better. And yeah, in, in good intentions aren't enough. Portland's a city filled with good intentions and you can see what has happened to our city and, and the crime and the, you know, the homeless drug encampments everywhere. Good intentions aren't enough. You also have to be right. You have to be right. And you have to measure what you're doing uh, on results, not intentions. Right. And, and that's an easy conversation to have in person. It's an impossible conversation for us to now have in our media because it's not allowed and they're so bifurcated. So for all those reasons and more, I think it's getting together in a community is really important. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a, an old saying, it's hard to hate up close. 
Um, and, and that's, uh, not to say that people aren't going to have violent clashes in the street. Cause you probably see that frequently in Portland that happens pretty much every week there. But, uh, when I say up close, I mean, people who live around each other, who, uh, uh, go to the same grocery stores and all this stuff, right. People who share the, the, the common experience. Um, and it's, you know, one of the other points about this statement about not allowing people to be taken advantage of or harmed. Um, it, it's something I come back to, like when I, when, when we talk about bullying, it's been a big, tr- uh, uh, topic the last 10 years or so, but when we talk about it, um, we spend a lot of time discussing how bullying is inappropriate and how there should be zero tolerance for it and stuff like that. But I, I've, I really feel like we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about who the bully is and why they are that way, right? Uh, like, you know, David is loud and obnoxious because he doesn't feel like he's getting the appropriate amount of attention or he associates uh, attention, which everybody wants, with his dad beating the shit out of him, for example. So that's how he gives attention to people. Or, or th- th- there's all kinds of examples of this stuff. But when it comes to like, especially in childhood bullying, like there, there's a reason. Like you should, it, it, and I tell younger people this all the time. People in like middle and high school, yeah, you should step in and stop bullying. There's no question about that. But there's two things you shouldn't do. One, you shouldn't treat the victim like a victim because that doesn't do them any favors. Uh, uh, we, we've certainly seen evidence of that. The second thing you should do is after you ensure that the victim of the bullying is okay, you need to go talk to this person before they become a fucking school shooter. You know what I mean? Like you, you, what do you think? You have no idea what, what caused that person. Like kids aren't just born and become pieces of shit by the time they're 10 years old for no reason. Something happened. And that kid maybe just wants somebody to talk to. And maybe you can do something, maybe you can't. But it's unacceptable not to try. And I'll say the same thing about (coughs) the problems, political problems in society. People seem to have chosen one side or the other. And, you know, that's fine. You, You can have your political party. You can have your political beliefs. But it does seem like every time a major issue comes up, whether it's you know, poverty in inner cities. Let's, let's use that as an example. Um, because people on the right disagree with how that symptom is being treated by the left, then they will, you know, abandon any kind of support for, for finding solutions there. Like, well, I don't like that, so we're not going to do it. Man, that's just a really myopic and, and, and frankly, uh, uh, unempathetic way of looking at things and it's also an unintelligent way of looking at things Um, it would be like just obviously your goal has to be to solve problems I think that should be the first part so you have to be able to entertain two ideas simultaneously in your head one that like hey this solution that you're advertising right now is fucking stupid and it's not going to work and it's probably going to make things worse but I still recognize that this is a problem. And this is the same thing I tell people about being involved in politics and in their own lives. If you don't want bad actors to come in and take advantage of your personal disadvantage or the disadvantages in your community, solve those problems yourself or get together with people in your community and solve them yourself. Because if you don't, 
somebody with an agenda is going to come in and solve that problem. They're going to do it in a way that probably makes it worse. Right. And they're going to do it because they want more power and more money typically. Um, so those things I wrap together, like the idea of bullying and the idea of political bifurcation and all the, uh, um, just anger that people have for, for the, the quote unquote other side. When the reality is people don't like to watch others struggle. It's very, it's uncomfortable. Like if somebody trips and falls next to you, it's uncomfortable. You know what I mean? It's embarrassing or you don't want to see people in pain or, uh, uh, you know, we've trained ourselves to step over homeless people because we have no solutions for that problem. That's not the answer, man. The answer is to like solve, help find a way to be part of the solution to these problems. Otherwise, lesser men are going to turn you into subjects. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, regards bullying, you know, I was bullied when I was a kid. When I moved from Hollister to a bigger, a much bigger city closer to the Bay Area and started to get bullied. I write about this in the first chapter of my book. And the problem with the zero tolerance policy is there's many problems with that. But school systems and the public schools sometimes are the worst offenders when it comes to bullying, ignoring bullying or how they handle it. And so the first thing I would tell anybody, whether they're a parent or a kid, is you have to fight back. Number one, that's just the first thing you have to do. It all begins with that. And what happens is what happened to me for, you know, I turned on a dime from being kind of a bookish, shy, you know, more effeminate kid to a violent juvenile delinquent with straight Fs. And uh, things could have really gone bad for me in multiple situations involving weapons and other things where I, I could easily have wound up in prison right now instead of where I was just, again, through sheer fortune. But that can happen very quickly to any kid, especially when you're an adolescent and you're at that stage, if people aren't careful, if you're not paying attention. Um, as far as the connection to that with the larger society, I agree. And, you know, what I see going on, for example, we'll talk about here in Portland, the violent, the, the bullying that boys and bullying that girls experience are often very different. Mm. Whereas boys, you're going to be dealing with reactive aggression and being physically held or punched or something like that. And with girls, they'll they'll often um, traffic in relational aggression where, you know, you do what I say, or I'm going to isolate you from your friends. Nobody's going to be a friend with you. You're not going to get this. It's basically a threat of social isolation and, and shame if you don't comply. And that's what I see in a larger context with our society here in a place like Portland. If you don't put your BLM sign yard sign up, if you don't agree that, you know, attacking the federal officers at the courthouse is the right thing to do, then we're going to put you in an, in a forced kind of social isolation where you're you're going to be a pariah to the community. I can see it with the teachers in the school system who aren't happy with the way things are going on but don't want to speak up. I can see it with I can see it with our city council. I can see it with my my citizens and the businesses that are putting up BLM uh, signs in their window, which basically is please don't burn me down signs. It's a it's a plea not to be attacked, um, and it's all a form of bullying. And, and my response is the same. You have to, just like when you're a kid, you have to, you have to fight, you have to fight back. You have to stand up. You have to stand up for other people. And as soon as you do, and as soon as they do, I think they'll find out really quickly that those people who are engaged in that kind of relational violence are a minority. They're a tiny fringe, crazy, um, mentally unstable minority. And the vast majority of citizens, whether they've consider themselves on the left or the right politically 
have a consensus that that's not okay, that people shouldn't be forced to to believe or put up any kind of yard sign or, or have to nod our head in agreement that this organization that's basically exploiting the black community and buying million dollar houses in all white neighborhoods is really the, the moral actor in the situation. Um, and I hope that we see more of that. I hope we see more people standing up. It seems like we are. I'm not great at picking out um, social trends, but it seems like finally the dam has broken and more and more people are standing up and saying, no, I just don't agree with that. And if the elections coming up, not to sidetrack, but if the elections coming up do swing largely to the Republicans, which I hope they do, just because I think that's the only thing that'll get the message across the Democratic Party, I think then things will start to change as well. Because the one thing I know that these people care about more than anything else is power. Hmm. If they realize they're not going to get elected if they support uh, policies that let violent offenders back out on the street over and over again, then they'll stop letting violent offenders back out on the street over and over again. But I think that's the only thing that's going to do it. So again, it's a question of getting people to stand up, say what you believe, stand up for your neighbors, stand up for yourself immediately, and don't let the, this form of intimidation happen locally in the school or as an adult or at your workplace or in the, the world of politics. 100%. Uh, uh, yeah, that's great. I agree with all of that. And it's, it's about uh, the ab- absence of leadership, you know. That's really what we're dealing with right now. And it, th- these are the, <clears throat> uh, the very obvious and inevitable results of a lack of leadership is what we're seeing in society right now. That, but the good news is, and I tell people every time I bring this subject up, I tell people it sounds daunting and maybe it's embarrassing because we all played a role in letting it get to this point. But the good news is, is that we're the ones that can solve it. There's nobody... Uh, the the idea that there's nobody coming to save you may seem intimidating, but what it does is put the power in your hands to change your own life. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we get out of here? Uh, no, I appreciate you having me on. If people are interested in our work, they can go to straightblastgym.com, see our locations around the world, uh, have a book coming out called the gift of violence. that should be out at the, in winter this year. And, um, you can look me up, Matt Thornton. And, uh, yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with me. Absolutely. All right. You guys, uh, go check out the, uh, all the media he does. Um, look forward for the book. Uh, we'll have you back on when it comes out to discuss some of those, uh, tennis as well. I appreciate you coming today. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. And I appreciate all of you listening. This has been citizen. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.